Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and I uh, want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, on your phones, in your hands, to Romans chapter 1. Um, also, if you don't have a Bible, the verses we're looking at are going to be in your bulletin. There's a place to take notes there as well. So go ahead and open that up. Part of today's passage that we're going to be looking at deals with homosexuality. And in our day and age, it's important for us at the outset, I think of all of our conversations regarding homosexuality, um, and not just homosexuality, but same-sex attraction, the entire LGBT community, uh, to begin those conversations by saying that the church has been wrong in interpreting the Bible and applying the Bible in two major ways. Okay, there's two ways the church has been wrong in interpreting and applying the Bible. Um, there are some people and some churches who are first anti-gay. They're anti-gay. Um, and so these are people and churches who have said things like, God hates fags, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, they also say resolutely that being gay is a choice, and you can unchoose being gay. If you just want to honor God, you should be able just to stop being gay. Um, and they act and speak as though homosexuality is the unpardonable sin or it's worse than all other sins. And I need you to know that Jesus and the Bible both are against these people and these churches. Okay. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are also people and churches who are pro-gay. Okay. These are people and churches who say, number one, God is love. And that everything that the Bible says about anybody needs to be filtered through the truth that God is love. And so the judgment passages in the Bible against homosexuality, they're actually trumped by this truth that God is love. And this group also says, you know, gay people were born this way, God made them gay, so it must be okay. Um, and, the, uh, and so these folks say that being gay is not a sin, um, and uh, the anti-gay side says, really, there's no way to reconcile being gay and following Jesus. The pro-gay side said there's no need to reconcile being gay and following Jesus because they're in harmony. And, and both of these sides see themselves as good and see the other side as bad. And most people, maybe you here today, most people are convinced that these are the only two options. You either got to be anti-gay or you got to be pro-gay. But Jesus and the Bible both say that both of these sides are wrong. Okay, both these sides are wrong. Jesus and the Bible call us to move away from the kind of polarizing rhetoric that comes from both sides of this discussion. Um, and they call us to what I call Jesus's gospel-centered third way. Okay, Jesus calls us to a gospel-centered third way. Okay, the Bible is not anti-gay, nor is the Bible pro-gay. But the good news of Jesus expressed in the Bible shows us a gospel-centered third way. Okay, Jesus doesn't agree with the, that the question is, are you pro-gay or anti-gay? Jesus doesn't choose either side, but he establishes a third way beyond the two. Okay, and so he doesn't side with either side here. Um, I want to show you just one verse um, we've preached on this before, so you can look this sermon up from last fall, but I want to just show you one verse where Jesus responds to someone who's caught in sexual sin. It's from John 8, verse 11. This is what Jesus says. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay, so neither do I condemn you. 
That's Jesus saying, I'm not anti-gay. I'm not part of the group that would stone you. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the one who has the authority to condemn, and he says he won't condemn. Okay, but Jesus isn't done. Jesus then says, from now on, sin no more. Jesus would also say, I'm not pro-gay either. Um, the Jesus who doesn't condemn also isn't condoning homosexuality. And so Jesus invites the woman that he's talking to in this passage to follow him and to trust him with her sexuality. He doesn't condemn her, but he does correct her. And so Jesus both Jesus corrects both this woman's sexual activity, but he also corrects the anti-religious, the, the religious leaders who are anti, their response to her sexual activity. And I think Jesus' response here is a model for Christians today responding to any behavior that should be corrected by the Bible. And so with this reminder of Jesus' gospel-centered third way, I want to read this passage from Romans, discuss it some, and then talk about how this should move us uh, this week even in our own relationships. And so we're going to look at Romans 1, starting in verse 21 all the way down to verse 32. And so, friends, listen, this is God's word. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Gosh, what's that doing in there? Um, foolish faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Listen to the whole passage. Right? Listen to the whole passage. That's what we're going to look at today. And what we're going to see, uh, we're going to look at just three points before we talk about um, the implications, although there will be implications throughout what we discuss. But the first thing that we're going to see is that God's design is male plus female or singleness. Okay, God's design is male plus female or singleness. And this is true from both the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. In creation and in salvation, it shows that God's design is male plus female. And so what does this mean? Well, this means that 
homosexuality is not God's design for sex um, from either creation or from salvation. Paul's words in verses 26 and 27 echo the language from creation in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, in Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so in the beginning, God made people in his image. They were created to be fruitful and to multiply. And in their male plus female complementarity, human beings are to express and to celebrate the abundant life-generating capacity of God's world. What we see is unity in diversity. Uh, what we see is an effort to celebrate the differences between male and female and to celebrate when they come together. Um, N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, probably without parallel in our day and age. He said this, he said, People are charged in the beginning with bringing God's order to the world. They're stewards of the garden and then the world. Males and females are very different, and they are designed to work together to make with God the music of creation. And something deep within the structure of the world responds to the coming together of like and unlike, something which cannot be reached by the mere joining together of like and like. And so God's design is that male and female are different, but they're designed for each other. Um, and this doesn't change in the New Testament. Um, the male plus female dynamic is repeated even in the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so in the New Testament even, this relationship between Jesus and his people is pictured uh, in the affirmed marriage between a husband and a wife. And so this is God's design. Um, this is something that is incredibly difficult to talk about in our day and age, um, where it feels like God's word stands against the complete trajectory and the current of our culture. Um, there are conversations that I have had there are people that I know and love that I have said it's not the right time to have this conversation, um, and, and that can be appropriate. There are, there's a time and a place to talk about the difficult things that are in Scripture, um, and it takes a lot of wisdom to know. There are people who want to bring this up first in their relationships with people, in their conversations with the gay community, um, with folks who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. I don't think that's wise. I think that, that what that does is it communicates. Um, it communicates to people that in some ways you have to change before you become a Christian. Um, instead, what I think is wise is to share with people the good news of Jesus. It's to share with people the love and the acceptance of Jesus. That though this passage sounds very anti-gay, it comes within the context of a Bible 
and it comes within the context of the ministry of Jesus, who is not anti-gay. And so, honestly, just all my cards on the table, I don't like preaching this message because I don't feel like this is the appropriate di- like environment to have the conversations that need to be had. I feel like what's best is for you and your friend to be um, your coworkers, your colleagues, your neighbors, your family members, to be sitting down in a loving environment where you can have a dialogue, um, not a monologue. And so, but this is God's word, and it's my duty and calling to make sure that someone in your life is proclaiming to you what the Bible says. And so, with honest fear and trepidation, with honest fear that people that I know and love, people that you know and love, will get the wrong idea about Jesus, I stand before you because at some point we have to have the conversation, no matter how it goes. And so, but this is God's design in creation. This is the design of God for sex. Um, And so the second thing that I want you to see from this passage um, is that homosexuality isn't the end of this passage, but it's in the middle, okay? Homosexuality is, is not the end of this passage, but it's in the middle. There's a progression in this passage, Right? You see three times in this passage, God gives people over, and there's this progressive worsening of sin in societies that turn their back on God. Okay? And I want you to see that homosexuality is not at the end of this progression. It's not at the end. It's not the worst thing. It's not the final stage of brokenness. Right? Consider what we've seen already, the, the sins that we've seen in the last two or three weeks right? The, the sins that have been identified of idolatry, of pushing down the truth, of suppressing the presence of God in our lives, these are things that we've all committed. These are things that all of us have done. These things come before verses 26 and 27. Plus, we've all committed the, verse, the, the sins that are in the verses that come after verses 26 and 27, Right? Um, So not only have we suppressed the truth about God, not only have we made decisions every day as though God doesn't matter or God doesn't care or God hasn't spoken, not only are there things in our hearts that we want so badly that when we remember what God says, we say, "Um, yeah, I'm just going to ask for forgiveness later, right? That's suppressing the truth. Um, We've all contributed to the culture that has fostered and promoted homosexuality. And we need to understand that. All sex that falls short of God's design contributes to a culture that throws off all of God's restraints for sex. When you see that, you realize what we're going to see in the next point, but not yet. But look, verse 28 to 32, the debased mind that doesn't care anymore about God. I mean, you think about all of these sins that are listed here, and I mean... In my own personal life, when I went through this, it's like, yep, check, 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 check. I mean, right? Have you ever envied someone else? Okay? Most of you probably haven't murdered somebody, but Jesus says that if you've, when you hate someone in your heart, that is murder in your heart. Right? Strife. Have you ever picked a fight with somebody? Have you ever been divisive? Right? Um, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and malice. I mean, gossip. Hello? 
Hello, and, and what's interesting is that these are verses that come after the verses about homosexuality. These are the things that happen after you have gone farther. It's, it's like farther than. In the Bible's opinion, these things are down the road of progression of evil and unrighteousness. And so if you have gossiped, if you have torn people down behind their back, um, inventors of evil, boastful, slanderers, disobedient to parents. I'm like, man, really? And yet this is the Bible's perspective. This is the Bible's perspective. It's that um, if you want to trace the progression of sin in this passage, if you want to say that some sins are worse than others, then be honest with what the passage says. Be honest with the progression that the passage says, and you can ask yourself, well, if I need to correct someone else's sexuality, am I doing this from a position of superiority? Or am I guilty of things that this passage says come after that progression? It's as though the downward spiral of all of our sin has swept us up and has swept a portion of our society into homosexuality. I mean, the trauma that most people who are part of the LGBT community have experienced shows that in significant ways, they are victims that have been swept up in the current of our society. Now, this doesn't mean that it's excused, because what does Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Okay, so please understand but this should elicit your compassion and your understanding. Can you stop and realize what Jesus is asking for from people from the LGBT community? Can you understand the cost that some people have to pay, right? Some of the things that Jesus calls them to give up in the gospel. I mean, what are the things that you've had to give up what are the things that, frankly, you haven't given up, but you're just trusting in the forgiveness of Jesus to be there for you in the end? Right? These are things that make us, that ought to make us compassionate, that ought to give us understanding, that ought to begin to build some bridges between the things that are less than God's design in our own orientation, because all of us have them. And so because of this, our third point is that we are all implicated in this. We're all implicated in this. Because if we've done anything to contribute to the brokenness of our society, then we are in part to blame for where our society is. Right? Think about this. Every time you have pushed God's truth down in your life, Every time you have said, you know what, it doesn't matter because God's just going to forgive me. Every time you have tried to hide God's truth from your situation or you've tried to push God's truth out of your mind. Every time you have committed idolatry by worshiping money or power or sex or control or being in a relationship, right? Every single time you've done that. You might not deal with same-sex attraction, but every time you've sinned in these ways, 
this passage teaches us that you've actually encouraged and promoted a culture that fosters homosexuality. You've actually built what we're living in. And not just homosexuality, but all kinds of sin that fall outside of God's design. And so, even if you don't deal with same-sex attraction, we all have created the current that fosters and, cult- and promotes the culture that we live in today. And this is important for us. Um, this is where we are able to come to Jesus and just be able to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like, we're better than no one. This really does help level the ground at the foot of the cross, right? That we are all equal before God. And even the sins of other people, like we can find ways that we may be in part responsible. We can own some of the responsibility. I'm not talking about being codependent, but I'm just saying like, look and see that this passage describes this progression of people in the society who have left God. And every time we do that, we contribute to all that flows, all that flows into it. Now, the good news for us today is that the gospel interrupts this story. Right? The gospel comes to disrupt and interrupt and give us a new story. Right? The reason that Paul talks about this is not to condemn homosexuality. It's not even to condemn all of the sins that he lists here. But the reason that Paul talks about these things is because he's preaching the good news of Jesus and he wants you to know that there is no place the gospel doesn't apply. Okay, Paul brings this up now underneath. He's already preached the gospel in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He's already preached the gospel and its impact in verses 5 through 16. He's already preached the gospel again in verses 16 and 17. This passage, this letter is full of good news. He has given these people assurance of who Jesus is and what he's done. He's given them assurances of who they are and what Jesus is doing in them. He's telling them that he sees God's work. He sees the presence of God. He sees all of these things. And these are Christians that he's talking to. And he says, now, look, in the midst of this good news, I want you to know that these are the areas where you need healing. These are the areas where this good news applies and brings new life. These are the stories that the gospel interrupts. So that if you found yourself in any of these stories, if your name is anywhere in this passage, the good news comes and says, Jesus has come for you. And so what we're going to see here, the story that interrupts, is that Jesus reveals God's love and truth. Jesus came to reveal God's love and truth. We've already seen that Jesus is neither anti-gay or pro-gay. And again, this passage sounds anti-gay, but remember, these are two verses in the whole book that is 16 chapters long. And so we have to read these verses in light of the context of the greatest news in the world. And so Jesus' gospel-centered third way combines both love and truth, okay? And what we see here is that love accepts and truth corrects. That's how these things fit together. Love accepts, truth corrects. But Jesus isn't 
either or. Jesus is both. And it's not that Jesus sometimes is love and then sometimes is truth. That's not true either. No, no. Jesus is loving truth and he's true love. Okay, and so we could maybe better say it that loving truth accepts and true love corrects. And this is what we need to strive and pray and seek God out so that we can know how to live this out in our lives. Like, What does it look like to live out loving truth that accepts? What does it look like to live out true love that corrects? I mean, Jesus' life, you can read the stories of him as he interacts with people in the Gospels. He is the perfect expression of, of truth and love throughout his ministry. But the ultimate expression of this is on the cross. It's his work on the cross. The cross shows perfect love, right? Jesus said in John 15, there's no greater love has anyone than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus said that just days before he went to the cross. And so on the cross, Jesus says to us, neither do I condemn you. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, whether you're gay or straight, neither do I condemn you. Jesus gave his life in the greatest act of self-sacrifice, in the greatest act of love. And so what we see here is that Jesus doesn't condemn anything that he hasn't suffered for. And that's good news, that the Jesus who corrects is the Jesus who died, who doesn't dissociate himself from sinners or from even the power and the penalty of their sin. But Jesus himself absorbed that. He took it on himself. And the cross also shows perfect truth. Right? 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so the cross stops us in our tracks, in the sinful patterns of our lives, in the, in the, li- in the lives that are, that are listed out in this passage. Um, we get stopped because we don't want to continue to live in ways that killed Jesus. We don't want to add to his suffering, sort of metaphorically speaking. And so, and so the cross, it's not correction that drives us away in shame. Okay, the cross is correction that draws us close to Jesus and heals us of the wounds of our sin. It gives us the power to go and sin no more. It gives us the motivation because we love Jesus who has done everything and given everything for us. And this is true whether we are gay or straight. And so um, we have distributed some articles. We'll send them out again this week um, that talk about this third way of Jesus and, um, and, and one of those is sort of the conglomeration of a number of different folks who are gay, struggling with what it means to follow Jesus. And um, this call from Jesus that we would deny ourselves sexually and devote ourselves to him, right, is not just true for folks who are, who are gay. Um, it's true for all of us. We'll talk a little about that in a minute. 
Um, but this is what it looks like. It's people who come to grips with Jesus in this way. It's someone who says, I finally come to grips with what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus came and lived a life of sacrifice. He was God, but he came to earth and became human. And as a human, he lived a life that was completely different from what he actually was. Jesus changed his orientation from God to God and human. He lived his whole life denying himself, keeping his godness hidden. He didn't live according to his orientation as God. And I can see now the sacrifice that Jesus is asking me to make about my sexuality is the sacrifice that he himself made for his entire life. I thought of this. Jesus even denied his own sexual orientation. Jesus was never married. He never had sex. And whether he was gay or straight, he didn't act on any of his sexual desires. He gave up fulfilling his desires. His desires weren't what he lived for. His whole life, all of his desires were second to his desire to please his Father in heaven. He was committed to his mission to save the world. And in his life, he brought into the world a love that is stronger than all sin. He was committed to this. He was so committed that he was even willing to die so that my sinful actions, fulfilling my sinful desires, could be forgiven. And Jesus was actually showing us exactly who God is. That God is someone who's willing to sacrifice everything he has to show others just how much he loves them. And so I'm in. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm convinced that if he lived and died for me, then I will do my best to follow him wherever he leads. I will do whatever he wants. I'm in. Are you? Are you? I want to talk about Lent this week. I want to talk about um, you know, this year, I'm going to call all of us as a church together to give up something different each week based on the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. Um, and so if you're already giving up something for Lent, um, please continue to do that. Um, but I want you to consider adding this for this week, okay? Uh, this week, I want us to embrace God's design for sex and intimacy, okay? Um, let's commit ourselves to God's design for sex um, for the next seven days, okay? And know single people are like, wait, wait, hold on. Is Pastor Stephen saying I get to have sex this week? <laughs> Let me explain. Let me explain. Um, so Lent is about denial and devotion, right? We're denying ourselves to be, so we can be devoted to God, all right? So denial this week means denying ourselves of all sexual sin, okay? We're going to deny ourselves of all sexual sin. And so for singles, right, this means no porn, no lust, no masturbation. This means no bitterness that you're not already married, this means striving to be content with your singleness. Um, if you're dating, this means being sexually pure in your dating relationships. Married folks, this means no porn, no lust, no masturbation. 
This means no bitterness that you are married to someone that you're not excited about. This means being content with your spouse. Um, This means that some of you need to be having more sex. Um, This means some of you need to be having more (coughs) understanding sex, where communication is paramount. Um, and so then, so if that's, if that's denial, and, and I want you to see that in that denying, that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give us something that we can deny together, where there's a lot of overlap between marrieds and singles, but there's also a significant amount of overlap between the different kinds of people who are single, right? These are ways that in some ways you can begin to relate to folks and what they have to go through to follow Jesus if they're same-sex attracted. And so this is, I want us to deny all sexual sin this week. And then for devotion, I want you to pursue and honor married love. Okay, pursue and honor married love. So that means singles. That means be the husband and wife now that you want to be in the future. This means saving yourself this week for your future spouse. Right? This means seeing marriages around you and esteeming them highly. Right? This means honoring those who are married in your life, maybe learning something from them. And for married folks, um, devote yourself this week to seeing your spouse as a gift from God. Um, See his or her gifts. See the way that he or she images God and commit to seeing God in him or her. Um, Pursue unity and intimacy this week. Have a conversation and ask, like, how can we grow together this week? And when it's difficult, remember that your ultimate devotion is to Jesus. Okay, when it's difficult, because it's going to be difficult. I can tell you that the hardest day of my life, I think in the last 20 years, was Wednesday after I told everybody, hey, let's give up thinking that life is supposed to be easy for the next four days. Um, That's what we did on Ash Wednesday. We said, let's give up the belief that life is supposed to be easy. And God said, Stephen, guess what? I'm going to let you live this out. (laughs) Um, In the moments when it's difficult, we're supposed to remember that God uses these difficulties to help us to to become strong, to help us to be strong. And so, If you're willing to commit to this, you're going to be tested on it, okay? It's not going to be easy, but I want to call you because Jesus came and gave up everything for you. You don't have to do this to earn his love, but do this because you have his love. Do this and he will meet you every step of the way. When it's difficult, he'll meet you there and give you the strength and the grace that you need. Um, when it's hard, think about him suffering for you and that he's given you his strength. Pray to him. And then I'd encourage you to open up to someone else and let them know how it's going this week so that you're not alone. So that you're not alone.
Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for being a merciful and gracious Savior. We thank you that you never confront or correct anything that you haven't suffered for. Um, We thank you that you understand what it's like to call us to deny ourselves, that you have shown us that a life of denial and devotion to God leads to eternal life. Jesus, we want so much to live out your, just to honor you. We want to live lives that matter. We want to live lives that, that affect other people, that help other people, that exemplify your presence to other people. Um, and this is part of that pathway for us. And so this week, would you teach us and be with us as we deny ourselves? I pray that you would help each one of us to see the sexual sin that we are guilty of, all the ways that we fall short of honoring married love. And help us, Jesus, to devote ourselves to that. And let us do it together in community so that we can support each other. Jesus, for the friends here that aren't, that aren't following you, would you show them that the good news can set them free? Show them the good news interrupts their story and gives them a new story, your story, which leads to everlasting life now with joy and real comfort and strength. We pray this in your name. Amen.